Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Rami. How are you doing today? I'm good, Hadi. Thank you for having me. For our listener, Rami Asaf is the CEO and co-founder of Zbuni, who just raised uh, 9.5 million in a Series A round, and their business is offering best-in-class technology to address the prevalence of social and conversational commerce. Rami, tell us a little bit, what does that mean for a user? What's the use case? Who's your customers? Good question. So when we talk about social commerce or conversational commerce, it is quite topical these days, but it wasn't an industry when we got into it. It didn't have a name per se. Uh, All we knew was that there was a convergence of commerce and it was moving into the messaging channels that we were using. And when you think about the propagation of WhatsApp, for example, and how ubiquitous that is in certain parts of the world, it's also a B2C. You know, that's an important B2C channel. And a lot of businesses rely on it to stay in touch with their customers. And I think more interestingly, customers, they like that. They like the idea of being connected to the business, being able to get reassurance, ask questions. A lot of it, let's say pre-sales activity, depends on that interaction between buyer and seller. And there was no way of formally doing commerce over WhatsApp or most social channels. Going back to 2016, that's the opportunity we saw. And we didn't know what to call it. We started calling it, you know, I think Chris Messina, the inventor of the hashtag, had first coined the term conversational commerce, but that was after we had already got set up. And we were calling it communication commerce. Got you. We were calling it chat commerce. And uh, today we call it C-commerce. Go ahead, Rami. Go ahead. And the C and C-commerce for us means connected commerce, but it sort of encapsulates all those things. Communication, conversation, chat, curated, customer-driven, customer-centric, uh, so all of these wonderful uh, words that start with the letter C are, are captured in that. So, Rami, what does that mean for your customer? Who's your customer? Is it an e-commerce platform that comes and they're using a Shopify? Or no, your platform is a replacement of a Shopify or a Wix or some form of e-commerce platforms? Our customers come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are what we call starter And for a lot of businesses today that are literally just getting started, their first port of call is to go directly to social media and use that as like a testing grounds for their business. People do that with Instagram, Facebook pages, TikTok, you name it. And for those types, they don't have any pre-existing technology or software that they're using. They just have a passion and they have a product that they want to sell or a service they want to sell, and they want to see if they have resonance with their customers. For them, we offer a pretty comprehensive end-to-end solution, which can often displace 
their need for having an e-commerce site. We give them a lot of features like a storefront, product cataloging, ways to keep track of their customers and their orders. And probably what's most important to them initially is the ability to accept payments and manage their payment inflow and reconciliation. So that's on the starter side. And we go all the way up to enterprise-grade customers. For them, they clearly already have an e-commerce storefront. They already have an ERP system or a CRM. So we add only certain components to their technology stack, their existing technology stack, that would help them operate more efficiently and capture the opportunity that they may be missing when it comes to C-commerce. We actually have product lines today that are geared specifically for Shopify-based merchants. And so it's a plug-in to Shopify. And so it's rather than being a single product that is for everyone, it's kind of a, a multi-product offering we have. And depending on the need of the customer, we serve accordingly. This is great, by the way. If you go back to your early days, what was the most challenging part about getting your first customer? And I know you use a freemium model or a free model with a percentage of every sale that happens, which is a very attractive model. But how were you able to get your first free users? So I think the biggest challenge we have was not that the market didn't need our solution. It was more that we were the first company to provide such a solution. And there was no blueprint per se as to... This isn't a copycat model. It's not like what you see, you know, someone like a rocket internet doing when they go into an emerging market and cut and paste something that they've seen in a more developed market. This was uh, first principles from the ground up or building something new. Even uh, how the product looks and feels and is designed, that came from us. We had to validate that every step of the way with our customers and with people who were willing to give us that. But the pain point was pretty clear. And as soon as we had a working product, let's say our MVP, we didn't want to market it and make ads for it. That We didn't feel that was appropriate because we wanted to be more intimate with our customers and really speak to them, approach them and have them one-to-one. And literally what we started to do, well, we looked at two things. One is you don't have to look very far, especially in a market like the UAE that's filled with entrepreneurs trying to do a business over social. So there's people in our direct network that we knew that we would sit down and literally, you know, put the product in their hands and show them how to use it. And then after that, we had, it's, you just have to go onto Instagram. And if you go on Instagram and you, you know, search hashtag for sale or hashtag at different extensions, you can find businesses that were acting informally on the platforms. And what's funny and the common attribute here is the way we started was If you had an Instagram page and you were trying to sell something and you had WhatsApp in your bio or a call to action, this was before there was a button for uh, WhatsApp. It was just kind of informally being used in the bio, WhatsApp me. There was a lot of that. And we would seek them out and 
hit them up one by one. And they have to give you their phone number <laughs> because that's how their customers would order from them. And it's that same phone number that we contact them on and say, hey, you must be getting a lot of messages. We'd like to talk to you about a solution that can help you streamline and improve your business. And so that's how we really got to our first 100 customers. And, you know, that's actually still a viable way of doing it. And it kind of creates this flywheel effect because as soon as your first customers adopt it and they start doing business that way, meaning what they would do is send a checkout card to sort of consummate their transactions that were happening on this channel. The customer could now click it and pay on a mobile web and check out and, and that would create a record of the transaction instead of it being off the record. So it started to formalize these transactions. As soon as the customer had that experience, they now learned there's something called Zbuni. Oh, what is that? And then it, that created a bit of a marketing momentum for the next hundred users. And uh, we've been doing that to date and we have 6,000 or so merchants on the platform. And so that's how it really got started. That's amazing, especially that you started with things that don't scale and you got around 6,000. Is there any strategy that followed this that was a little bit more scalable and that has worked very well for you? We did start to use advertising and we hired a small ad agency to help us with that. And I think the pain point was so pronounced, like I want to collect payments on WhatsApp. So we would just create ads that would show uh, you know, like a payment being done via WhatsApp and says, accept payments on WhatsApp. To date, that's the best performing ad we've ever had. And we ran that on Facebook and Instagram and other channels. And there was a time where it was far more cost effective to run ads. It's become a lot different these days and you have to be very competitive. That was the next iteration of our sort of marketing or go-to-market distribution model. Today we have partnerships and other avenues for doing that. And it's largely organic actually. But um, that's how we kind of scaled up and got more resonance. This is a great. Thank you for sharing this, Rami. What do you think are three KPIs that you have tracked and that have served you well in raising your Series A round? Super good question because KPIs for us initially were super basic. And this is a very important factor for those running a business or starting a business today, the overwhelming nature of data and all the things you can measure can often lead to kind of confusion. And you really want to focus on KPIs that are called, you know, high tide KPIs. If these are up, it must mean everything else is dragged up with it. So for us, we don't change KPIs all the time. But it has happened a few times where we say, let's focus on this KPI for us. It's number of merchants on the platform was a core KPI. Number of interactions between buyer and seller was a KPI. And we realized that we could attract a lot of businesses and a lot of activity, but it didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily the right businesses that were driving transactions or meaningful transactions on the platform. And so for Series A, our 
core KPIs were only two. It was how many merchants are on the platform and how much GPV is being done on the platform. GPV is gross processing value. That's like the GDP that's being produced out of this uh, system. And those remain vital KPIs for us while we do introduce other ones. Very interesting. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. If knowing what you know today, if you go back, is there any mistakes that you would have avoided specifically on acquisition? Yes. And uh, there's no shame in that. I think when we thought about acquisition, we considered that there's some sort of a linear relationship to ad spend and uh, ROI. What we found is that there's probably like a ceiling and the more you spend on ads beyond that, you get a diminishing return. And so there's a, a healthy balance you want to strike with that type of acquisition where if you spend X amount, you'll get this type of acquisition cost and this type of predictability from it. After that point, it becomes almost a wasteful exercise. And if you don't spend that much, you're leaving opportunity on the table. And synthesizing that and finding that right spend, I wouldn't say, yes, um, there's a mistake in the assumption that the more you spend, uh, you get, fortunately, we co corrected for that and started looking at other avenues for acquisition. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for sharing this. You know, I'm very fascinated with pricing because it's a core element in driving your revenue. It's part of the formula of price times quantity. I noticed you are free with a percentage of someone's sales, which aligns very nicely with their you know, effort. How did you decide between this and doing a subscription service, for example? The decision was deliberate to do that because the addressable market is one with what we'll call the long tail of merchants. These are merchants that are typically off the grid. Like if you wanted to sell an enterprise SaaS, you could create your target list and say, this is how big the market is. And you can name the market. You can index them and you know who they are. And you can do a sales call to them. When you're dealing with long tail or even micro businesses, you don't have that luxury of saying, okay, these are all, I can't name all the customers that I want to target because they exist almost in the ether. They're out there somewhere and you have to draw them to you. You have to have a compelling enough value prop that they're drawn to you. And that's a self sign up process and that self sign. So fundamentally speaking, that means that your distribution isn't a typical or at least ours is not a typical sales function. It's not an outbound sales function that we're calling up businesses. The system is designed uh, for self-serve. And when you do that, you don't know who you're attracting and you don't know who you're turning off by putting a paywall there. We elected to make it so that anyone can sign up. Anyone has an equal chance to try the service. And we want it to be really aligned with our customers, meaning that we're not so interested in selling SaaS and a monthly fee and a fixed fee and whether you use the service or not, or if it adds value to you or not, we're going to be charging you. I think that's kind of a misalignment of interests in some regards, whereas our business model uh, suggests that we'll charge a percentage per 
successful order, meaning that you don't have any cost associated to this unless it's working for you. And we're aligned with you in that we're encouraging, we need to help you sell more and we need the service to work for you. And it allows us to empathize with the customer better and think about their problems and what can really help them sell more. And so that was the genesis of that business model. It was a, a thesis that has played out pretty well and it scales very well so far. Perfect. So you were a venture partner at MEVP. So you were on the other side of the coin. If I'm an investor and there's an entrepreneur and you want to advise them now that you're on both sides of the coin, what advice can you give them to increase their chances of landing an investment? I did work for a stretch in uh, venture capital. I wouldn't say that that's my uh, forte, but I was on the other side for a while and I was on the other side of the table with entrepreneurs who were looking to raise capital. There was a few things that stuck out to me. Primarily, a lot of people mistime their engagement with a venture capitalist, meaning they're usually too early or they don't have enough data to warrant like a decision to be made, an investment decision. And for that reason, you're going to get rejected. It's not because the thesis isn't good or the team isn't good. It's really just about timing. And I think the other pitfall that entrepreneurs fall into is they get really excited by their own idea and they think that an idea is worthy of investment. And it's not. Really, ideas are a dime a dozen. And I think we all know that. So the hustle involved with executing that idea and what you can do as an entrepreneur to just inch things forward, even if it's not scalable, even if it's not uh, perfect, but the motion of you moving things forward, an investor can read that and they can see if you have that drive or tenacity or that hustle, it's almost innate and, uh, can't be taught, but you can encourage people to do that. And I think that's what separates some of the entrepreneurs that get funded and some that don't. It's really like this intangible burning desire and not making excuses. You know, it's very easy to say, once I get capital, I'm going to do A, B, C. I'm going to hire a sales team. I'm going to hire a product team. I'm going to hire, etc. Whereas if you are true to the mission, you're going to figure out a few things that you can pull off that demonstrate a there's a demand for what you're doing and b that you can serve that demand and you know how to serve it and that data that delta of having no data and that minimal data is often the difference between you raising capital or not thank you for sharing this what are three principles that have made you a successful entrepreneur well i think one is you have to be a person that your team can depend on. I still take a lot of pride in being the first person in the office and the last one out. And it's very difficult to ask things of people to go the extra mile when they see that you're not doing that. And when you are doing that, they naturally will do it too. So it's this like a tango that you dance with people on your team and no one wants to be the person that dropped the ball because they didn't put in the extra time. 
And that's one principle. I don't know what you call that principle, but I guess that's being uh, demonstrating that hard work ethic. Two is allowing people to make mistakes and not giving them such a hard time for it. The idea is make your mistakes. That's good. It means something's happening. At least something you, you attempted something. You should encourage that. But if a mistake is made, what did we learn for, from it? And what can we do better about it? And that constant iterative process is a value that you have to embody and that we live by. And third, I think it's keeping all stakeholders well-informed. I think there's some shyness from certain leadership to just share the information that they need to know. People are always on a need, this need-to-know basis. And I think when you involve people and let them understand why a company is going in a certain direction or making certain decisions, it goes a long way. And that involves team, it involves customers, it involves investors and stakeholders, and sharing the thought process, not to bore people, but so that they understand why things are happening. That's another value I think is critical. Thank you for sharing this. If you were to be remembered for one thing, what would that be? No one's ever asked me that question, Hattie, but that's a good question. I think that if I was going to be remembered for something, I think that you know, business, commercial, making money is, there's nothing wrong with it. But I want to be remembered more for making that process enjoyable, being a person people like to work with and that they respect because there's strong ethics and there's strong moral compass as opposed to just being ruthless in business. And uh, for me, that's an important thing. And that's a legacy I'd like to pass down to my kids. Very helpful. Thank you for sharing this. One last question. What's next for Zbuni? What's next for Zbuni is we tend to move in phases. And the phase we've operated in over the past two years is really trying to get a strong grasp of our domestic markets. We operate in a few territories here, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Jordan. In those markets, we've got a good foothold. And what's next for us is adapting our technology so that it can be served to a more global audience without all the inertia necessary uh, in setting up in every market, but being a more scalable global product and modifying our uh, solution accordingly so that we can uh, scale and serve a wider audience. That's what's next. Thank you for being part of our show, Rami. Where can people reach you? You can reach me if you just message help at spoonie.com. I still get CC'd on all of those, or you can email me anytime, Rami at Spoonie, R-A-M-Y. Best of luck, Rami. Thank you. Thank you, Adi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 